0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So welcome to the 29th podcast in our series on American history. In the 28th podcast, we looked at some interesting perspectives on James Madison in the War of 1812. We looked at the American rationale for starting the war and, unfortunately, the fact that we were not able to gain any significant territory or victories in Canada. We saw, again, why Madison thought the time was right because Great Britain was preoccupied with that conqueror Napoleon traipsing across the continent of Europe and also at war with Great Britain, Madison thought the time was perfect to attempt to re-establish our own sovereignty within the international waters to stop British impressment of American shipments. That said, when Napoleon was exiled, Great Britain was able to turn her attention to the United States in the war with us, which of course, as we know, ended quite badly within 1814, by the end of 1814, with the United States, uh, Washington, D.C. being uh, raided and burned as well as Baltimore, Maryland. The Treaty of Ghent resolved that in 1814, which was going to therefore make, because of the following Battle of New Orleans in the next January of 1815, made, of course, Andrew Jackson a national hero. We then moved to this idea of American nationalism, that even though we did not necessarily gain anything from that conflict, the fact that we stood our own once again Great Brit- with, against Great Britain gave America that boost of national unity, where we were now able for the first time, by and large, able to call ourselves Americans first, rather than Ohioans or Illinoisans or New Yorkers, etc. So we then looked at how James Monroe would continue that and then discussed, of course, the Monroe Doctrine passed on December 2nd, 1823. So in our 29th podcast now on American history, we're going to look at <clears throat> two different situations that are developing in America. And one of them is called the emergence of sectionalism. And then the first... American political presidential election where we don't have a founding father to nominate from either party. So let's look at again this idea of sectionalism. What eventually began to rear its ugly head was the gross abuse of the human race that had a darker skin color than that of the average. John and Jane Doe American. Slavery was not going away in the South, nor was it in terms of politics. Now, each year, less and less Southerners would own slaves. But again, what about a federal mandate, federal law to abolish slavery? The concern there is if the federal government can ban that, what's next? where and what of our First Amendment, or excuse me, our top 10, our Bill of Rights, first 10 amendments, top 10, Bill of Amendments rights would be trampled on because of that, if, if America were to pass that resolution. So to figure out as America continued now, because of the Louisiana Purchase and what Lewis and Clark had discovered way out West, how will those territories eventually merge as states? Will slavery be allowed in the New Territory? If so, where? And how will it be decided? Will the people of a territory vote on it as they get inducted to statehood? Will it be a federal mandate? How? So while that political situation was getting more and more heated throughout the 1810s, it finally was able to be quashed or at least put on the back burner long enough to stave off a potential civil war with the passage of what became known as the Missouri Compromise of 1820. What the Missouri Compromise stated was that 36 degrees 30, 3630, was set at the line where slavery will be banned north of that line. If you were to get a map of the United States, or just simply dive into Google, type in U.S. map, that's where we would see that evil smile, that ironic smile that goes from between the state borders of Virginia and North Carolina, and then follow that state, follow that line, excuse me, and not only is Virginia and North Carolina divided, the line divides Kentucky and Tennessee, Missouri and Arkansas, Nebraska and Oklahoma, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Arizona, and then stops at Nevada that traipses down just below that line and clearly cuts the bottom third off of California. But it would be, as Missouri was being inducted to statehood, that was the concern, where would slavery be allowed there? way out west in the Nevada and California territories, they had not evolved into statehood. So there wasn't concerns at that point where the states would be would be formed. While you have a map of the United States in front of you, or try to picture this if you're driving or on your treadmill or, or biking or what have you, this is part of the reason why when one travels west of the Miss, uh, Mississippi River and you leave the states of Missouri and Arkansas, You begin to see a series of five states that are divided basically by three degrees of latitude. That's going to bring you from North Dakota all the way down to Oklahoma. Go one set of states further west and you get only four states. Montana through Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico those states are a little bit larger or taller because they're divided by four degrees of latitude. So the degree of three divides those states that had higher populations closer to the Mississippi River, and then the degrees of four as those populations were a little bit less. And just by looking at a map and listening to this podcast, you'll have understood why those states, at least in terms of their north and south, had their lines drawn where they did. The east and the west lines that's a series for a whole different set of podcasts, which are in some cases just as interesting. But with 3630 being drawn, was therefore the Missouri Compromise accepted and a civil unrest, at least for the time being, put on the back burner? What the Missouri Compromise did is avoided the first major clash over slavery. Was it resolved Or was it more or less modified and then swept back under the rug? Historians still debate to this day. But the first major clash between the political entities of the North and the South was resolved. However, why did I go ahead and mention this idea? Was the institution of slavery modified and then swept under the rug once again? Because even though the impasse was resolved without military conflict, white Southerners were realizing that they were becoming a minority. And that's significant and oftentimes this is either glossed over or overshadowed or in some cases skipped entirely in American history classes in high school and college. But we need to understand just because i'm attempting to understand and hopefully you will understand the mentality of southerners that doesn't mean you agree with them and that's oftentimes in our very very divisive society is that there is this notion that if i understand somebody i automatically agree and vice versa and that's not the case understanding is one thing agreeing is entirely something else but to put this again in an attempt of balance of where northerners were looking at this political issue versus southerners southerners realized again they were becoming a minority within themselves the reason being is that slaveholding was becoming less accepted by not only americans throughout the united states but also around the world remember that in 1820 our neighbor to the south mexico had just unified and claimed its independence from Spain just 10 years prior. In 1810, they got their independence. And one of their national statutes is that slavery would be banned. So we also look at it from uh, the slaveholder's standpoint, that there is no slavery north of that 3630. There's no slavery south of the Rio Grande. And while slavery would be allowed south of the 3630 across the Mississippi River, let's face it, that land is not as arable, is not as nutrient-filled as that of east of the Mississippi River. Therefore, as people began to count, to start to carve out territories in a place called home, the idea of those massive lush green plantations was highly unlikely due to the arid climate and less nut- nutrient laden land that was found in Texas and further out west. It's not, again, that nothing was grown out there, but not in the sense of the volume that the southern states were known for on the eastern half of our United States of America. There's another reason, too, for this idea that the southerners were realizing they were becoming a minority, because to the southerners, And again, please remember, and I'm going to repeat it again to the point that you roll your eyes to ad nauseum by the time the American Civil War breaks out in 1860, not to give away the future part of the story, however, but remember that by 1860, 75% of Southerners will not own slaves and hadn't owned slaves for years. Then why did they break out in war over slavery? Because again, ladies and gentlemen, you have to remember it wasn't about slavery, it was about this idea of states' rights. And I know as those words flow out of my mouth that I have colleagues back where I taught at Moraine Valley Community College in Chicago, at DePaul University in Chicago, and out here at Cuyahoga Community College that vehemently disagree, as well as allies that do agree with me and colleagues that do agree with me. But there is still divisiveness even to this day that states' rights had nothing to do with it, while other historians said that had everything to do with it. Slavery was simply the face to that concept, to that freedom of this idea of states' rights. So, for the time being, however, we are in 1820, we are in the middle of the James Monroe administration, and as the fifth president is running for reelection, he's going to win, largely, because of the Missouri Compromise being passed earlier that year. That then brings us, as we talked about, the second half of the Monroe administration was this idea of creating the Monroe Doctrine, which, again, we talked about on the prior podcast. That then brings us to the year 1824, where James Monroe will step down after his second term. At this point, please remember, a quick review here, how many presidents we've had, and of those that won re-election, all but one did, nobody passed George Washington's idea of two terms. By, the, by 1824, when James Monroe stepped down, we don't know again if he right at the forefront of his mind said, Well, oh, I have to because George Washington said we have to, or because he did, I have to follow his example. We don't know because, as I said again when in that podcast, when we covered about George Washington, when he said two terms is enough, we don't know if again if he meant personally or politically, but it was a precedent, an example that George Washington had set that up until now, no. Sitting president was daring to surpass. The idea was that if George Washington didn't go for a third, who better than him thinks that they can? So it mean it meant then that in the election of 1824, it was going to be an open seat. There was no incumbent running for re-election. So, of course, at this point, the strengthening Whig Party will be throwing their hat against the ring in the ring, against, of course, the burgeoning. Uh, second generation of Republicans or Democrats, excuse me, who was actually going to be able to win this idea of re-election. The Democrats have a uh, stronghold with their um, candidate of Andrew Jackson. The Whigs are going to throw their candidate up with Henry Clay, as well as that of John Quincy Adams, who's going to be leading from the line of Republicans from former Uh, President James Monroe, or was soon to be uh, former President James Monroe. This, however, election was really important, though, for reasons that wasn't lost on anybody able to vote, read a newspaper, and follow current events. This was the first presidential election where we did not see a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a signer of our Constitution of the United States, or even a soldier by and large, fighting during the American Revolution. As a result, who now begins to grab the mantle and occupy the White House going forward? Well, John Quincy Adams clearly thought that he would be a prime candidate as President of the United States. However, so did Andrew Jackson with his military victory at the Battle of New Orleans. The Whigs thought it was prime time for them as well by nominating their candidate, Henry Clay. And then, of course, we also have yet a fourth uh, candidate who's going to be throwing his his hat in the ring as well. That being, of course, William Crawford, who's going to be some significant competition to the other three candidates. So we have four very strong personalities vying for an open seat in 1824. The problem was, is that the election failed to produce an electoral majority from any of the candidates. And because of the passage of the 12th Amendment in 1804 in the Thomas Jefferson administration, there had to be an electoral majority, not a simple majority, but a vast majority of the electorates, uh, electoral votes. With the four candidates, with the results of the election in 1824, John Quincy Adams came away with 84, Andrew Jackson came away with 99, and William Crawford came away with 41. The problem was we had a fourth candidate, Henry Clay, who also walked away with 37. None of the candidates, therefore, had that electoral majority. So the 12th Amendment stated that would then go to the House of Representatives to decide between the top three electoral victors. That dropped Henry Clay out of it. While the House of Representatives was whispering amongst themselves as to how they were going going to vote, witnesses found that Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams were having some extensive conversations together between themselves. And when it came down to vote, Henry Clay, thanking everybody for the, of those that supported him and thanking them for their support, essentially stated that your votes for me, it would, it would be an honor to see those votes go to John Quincy Adams. And that put John Quincy Adams over the top when the House of Representatives made their final vote. However, it would lace the John Quincy Adams administration with something that became known as a corrupt bargain. And it also looked as though, as as Andrew Jackson put it, that now we would have a second generation of founding fathers to lead the United States, John Quincy Adams, isn't that the only reason Andrew Jackson later said that you won the presidency was because you were riding your father's coattails? Well, an argument could be made for that. However, Andrew Jackson was also an angry man. He certainly was a commoner president, having no sense of decorum in the sense of any kind of family legacy. He certainly did not come from money. He was a true people's president, eventually when he wins the presidency, as we know, in 1828. However, it's also not entirely fair. First off, for John Quincy Adams, the son, to ride his father's coattail, we are talking about an election in terms of when his father was in office a quarter of a century prior. That's a long time to be trying to grab at somebody's coattails. What's more is that John Adams, his father, was also a one-term president and an unpopular president. So it's really a stretch for the Jackson clan to say that Adams was simply riding his father's coattails. Please note, too, that in terms of John Quincy Adams' resume, one has to go and search long and hard to find a presidential candidate with truly more political and international relations experience than John Quincy Adams brought to the table. Prior to his career, before the pre- his career before the presidency, he was minister to Prussia, minister to Russia. He was a Massachusetts state senator. He was a United States senator. He was the chief negotiator for the Treaty of Ghent that absolved, resolved the War of 1812. He was also minister to Great Britain on behalf of the United States and secretary of war for the eight years of the James Monroe administration. There was not, collectively, a resume out there that could compete with John Quincy Adams. However, the deal was done, but the legacy of an alleged corrupt bargain between Henry Clay, who ironically... There was not, collectively, a set of resumes out there that could have really run a true challenge to the resume of John Quincy Adams. So what I'm trying to get at is John Quincy Adams won the presidency on his own merit with an unbelievably impressive list of accomplishments prior to his, his four years in the presidency. However, he won the presidency, but like his father would by and large be an unhappy president That's not to say that nothing was done in his four years. John Quincy Adams, as our sixth president, would be the first president of the United States to sponsor legislation for internal improvements. The actual Cumberland Road into the state of Ohio was funded because of the Adams administration. While his predecessors were strict constructionists of the Constitution, who did not think they had the mandate or the right to authorize internal improvements to the United States. John Quincy Adams' view on that was more or less that if the president of the United States can't do that, who should? Congress, why should they be the only ones that can fund different improvements? So John Quincy Adams started that and laid down the the legacy and the example for future future presidents to be able to point to John J. Q. A. and say, "Hey, if he was able to do it, why can't we?" And future presidents, none other more so than Franklin uh, Delano, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, would do more internal improvements than arguably almost any other American president from John Quincy Adams forward. However. He's going to, as I alluded earlier, to be a one-term president, and it had nothing to do with the internal improvements, but rather the tariff of abominations that was passed in 1828. On the surface, all John Quincy Adams as president wanted to do was to simply establish some form of protection of international goods coming in from Europe and elsewhere around the world and to protect American mercantilist interests to the north. As a result, the Southerners were greatly dejected by this as it made it difficult for them to trade their raw materials with countries around the world who would then slap a tariff back at the United States because of the tariff of President Adams. This is going to be a central point of contention in the presidential election of 1828 and, as John Quincy Adams is going to find out, that support from Henry Clay back in the election of 1824 would come back to haunt him so aggressively that would ultimately make John Adams, like his father, a one-term president. However, who would be the individual to unseat a sitting president? None other than the man that thought he deserved it four years prior, the first commoner American president, Andrew Jackson. So when we come back in the next podcast, we're going to take a look at the presidency of Andrew Jackson, who, as we know, will be a two-term president. But please note, which is oftentimes not, people are not aware of, it will be the last two-term president that America's going to see for another four decades. Andrew Jackson will be, as the seventh president of the United States, a two-term president. The next time we will elect an incumbent is not going to be until we get to number 16. Why? What's going on in the American presidency that is going to make for a very long run of one-term presidents? Well, First off, there's going to be two deaths in office, something that we have not had yet to contend with, two deaths of two sitting presidents. But secondly, that institution of slavery is going to come back and rear its ugly head in the 1830s and will not go away until over 623,000 Americans will lose their lives in an attempt to answer the question, of whether the federal government has the right to abolish slavery. So, thank you for listening to my podcast. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments that you might have, especially book recommendations. And if you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.